0: Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is A Slave, But Now I'm Free. This is Episode 4.6, Elizabeth Freeman, Suing for Freedom. Up until now, my problem in this series has been a scarcity of information. Slaves have existed since the birth of civilization, but they weren't leaving detailed autobiographies lying around for the benefit of future historians. Their masters weren't leaving around records on slaves either, because who cared about slaves? It never occurred to them to waste time, ink, and parchment on such a subject. But all that changes now. With the growth of the abolition movement in the UK and then in North America, suddenly there was interest. It was small at first, but we are no longer dependent on court records and brief mentions in works that are really about something else. Also, far from scraping the internet for anyone who left enough information to fill an episode, I am now swamped with too many names and stories. So, everyone from here on out is an African American, and I am still leaving a lot of women out, sometimes because their story is very similar to another that I'm already telling, sometimes because I'm saving that woman for a future series, and sometimes just totally arbitrarily. Today, Our heroine is Elizabeth Freeman. She was born somewhere in the neighborhood of 1742, probably somewhere in Massachusetts. Slaves had first arrived in Massachusetts over a 100 years earlier in the 1630s and had been explicitly legal since 1641, but they were not a huge segment of the population as they grew to be elsewhere. In the mid-18th century, only about 2.2% of the population in Massachusetts were slaves. But of course, 2.2% of the population still leaves a significant number of people in slavery, and Elizabeth was one of these. She grew up in the West Massachusetts town of Sheffield, where she belonged to a Colonel John Ashley and his wife. Naturally, she did not have the very suggestive name Freeman at this point, and she is usually referred to as Bet or Mumbet, with either one or two Ts at the end, it's just not consistent. Bette wasn't the only slave in the Ashley household. Her sister Lizzie was there too. There was also a man named Brom. Bet is said to have gotten married, though I can find very little about her husband. Possibly he was a slave there too, or possibly not. Bette is also said to have had a daughter named Little Bette, and of course she would have been automatically a slave too by virtue of having a slave mother. One of my sources suggested that Lizzie, the sister, might not really have been a sister, she might have been the daughter. It just really isn't as clear as we would like. At any rate, there may well have been still more slaves about the household. In many slave households, the one to fear was the master, but Colonel Ashley was not the reason Bette desperately needed an escape. He seems to have behaved himself relatively decently, as far as slave owners go. In this household, the mistress was the one to fear. Mrs. Ashley had a violent temper and, in Bette's words, never overlooked anybody's wrongdoing but her own. The colonel's main flaw was that he did nothing to restrain his wife. Bette was around 40 years old and had lived with the Ashleys for almost all her life on the day that she decided this could not go on. Lizzie had cooked a wheat cake for the Ashley family. Now, this is not a sweet dessert like we might imagine a cake today, this would have been a major component of the family meal. I don't know what the slaves were expected to eat for that meal, but Lizzie chose to scrape out the bits of batter from the bowl and cook up a little wheat cake for herself, which seems absolutely reasonable to me, but Mrs. Ashley disagreed. She walked in just as Lizzie was popping her teeny tiny little cake into her mouth. Mrs. Ashley yelled, Thief! And Bet walked in just as she was raising a shovel from the fireplace while Lizzie cowered in front of her. Bet threw herself between her mistress and Lizzie, and so the red hot shovel came down on her arm, cutting the flesh to the bone. Bet refused to cover her wound. She displayed it defiantly. People who saw it would say, Why, Betty, what ails your arm? And she would say, Ask Missus, in response. She later said, I had a bad arm all winter, but Madam had the worst of it. Amid the pain and the anger, Bette also found a small glimmer of hope. She had been a slave for all of her life, but it was now 1780 and revolution was in the air. More than just in the air, General Washington had been leading the troops for years now. The war dragged on and on, and plenty of fiery speeches had been made. Some of them had been made by prominent men gathered in the Ashley household, where Bette could hear every word. As far back as seventeen seventy three, john Ashley had hosted a meeting of eleven men, who published the "Sheffield Declaration," of which the stated aim was "to take into consideration the grievances which Americans in general, and the inhabitants of this province in particular, labor under." The "Sheffield Declaration" resolved that mankind in a state of nature are equal, free, and independent of each other, and have a right to the undisturbed enjoyment of their lives, their liberty, and property and resolved that the great end of political society is to secure in a more effectual manner those rights and privileges wherewith God and nature have made us free. At some point, Bet also heard the words of the brand new Massachusetts State Constitution, which a certain John Adams drafted in 1779. It included a Declaration of Rights. It was hashed over by the world's first constitutional convention, with elected representatives from every town in Massachusetts, including Sheffield. It was ratified by them on June 15, 1780, and is arguably the world's oldest still-functioning constitution. Among other things, the Adams Constitution said, All men are born free and equal, and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties. Bet, hearing this, made the very logical leap that so many of these men failed to make. She decided those words applied to her, despite the fact that she was black and female and had not been born free or equal to her owners. Bet went to see Thomas Sedgwick, an attorney in town. She told him she wanted to be free, and those words in the Constitution said she ought to be free. Naturally, she had no money to pay. Sedgwick took her case anyway. He was something of an abolitionist. But law cases take time, and naturally the Ashley household would be a rather awkward place to live in the meantime. So Sedgwick also invited Bette to stay with his family for a while. Now I imagine that if this case had come up in another jurisdiction, it might have been thrown out immediately because, as I discussed in Episode 4.1, slavery just was. It always had been. Most of the authorities weren't wringing their hands over it, and they certainly didn't mean for all that give-me-liberty-or-give-me-death stuff to apply to their slaves. Goodness me, no. But this was Massachusetts, and the abolitionist movement was already gaining momentum. As early as 1764, a widely circulated pamphlet said, The colonists are by the law of nature freeborn, as indeed all men are, white or black. So it was on August 21, 1781, that the case Brom and Bette versus Ashley came before the Court of Common Pleas. Now, this is not a proud feminist moment, given that Bette was the originator of the suit, not her fellow slave, Brom. But Brom was added to the front of the appeal because the last thing Bette needed was a wrangle over women's rights when the main point was to get her away from Mrs. Ashley. Having a man as the first plaintiff eliminated any possible excuses on that score. One day later the jury decided in Bet's favor. She was free. She and Bram were awarded damages of 30 shillings plus 6 pounds in court costs. Okay, so good that they got something, but the ratios there are still deeply unsettling. There were 20 shillings in a pound, meaning that court costs were four times more valuable than damages for a lifetime of slavery for two human beings. But at least they won, right? This case was one of several that led to an outright ban on slavery in the state of Massachusetts by 1783. John Ashley did file an appeal, but he withdrew it before it could be heard, probably because he knew that public sentiment was against him. He wasn't going to win. Meanwhile, what happened to Bette? Well, John Ashley offered to pay her wages if she would come back and resume her work. She said no. She renamed herself Elizabeth Freeman, which was a richly suggestive last name to choose. But her share of 30 shillings wasn't going to last long, and there weren't exactly a lot of other economic opportunities for a woman like her. Fortunately, the Sedgwick family liked her. The Sedgwick children liked her. She stayed with them as a nanny, midwife, and general household help. You might say that sounds very much like what she was doing in the Ashley household, And you'd be right as far as daily chores were concerned. The all-important difference was that she was free to leave. And she was paid. And no one hit her with red-hot shovels. The Sedgwick family were glad to have her for many reasons besides just domestic help. In 1786 and 1787, four thousand rebels, protesting high taxes and debt, took up arms and marauded the countryside in what was called Shays' Rebellion. The Sedgwick home was a tempting target for many reasons not the least of which was that sedgwick himself was often away at the capital on more than one occasion bet defended the house once by shouting that she would scald any intruders with boiling beer i'm not making this up though it's possible that catherine sedgwick was once bet did it by scaring away the prize mare the men were trying to steal once she did it by sitting on her own locked chest while they searched the house for the family valuables never dreaming that the household valuables would be locked in a servant's personal chest. Once she did it by serving these uneducated rustics very bitter beer and shaming their ignorance, telling them that this was what gentlemen always drank if only they were classy enough to know it. Embarrassed, the men left. Eventually, Elizabeth Freeman saved up enough money to buy her own plot of land. She spent her last years living on it with her children and grandchildren. We know her story in part from the court records, but also from a more detailed source. One of those Sedgwick children was a girl named Catherine, and Catherine had literary aspirations. She grew up to write successful novels featuring forward-thinking women. But she also left numerous letters and a piece called Slavery in New England, which featured her former nanny, Elizabeth Freeman. Catherine wrote about Freeman in glowing terms, with words like Uncompromising honesty, conduct of high intelligence, strong love of justice, iron resolution, quick and firm decision. One starts to wonder whether Freeman had any faults at all, amid all this heavy praise. We might even wonder whether Catherine was just the type of person who dished out superlatives on everyone, but no, Freeman is the most exceptional person mentioned in all of Catherine's autobiographical works. So something about her really did make a very favorable impression on this little girl that she cared for. And probably not just on Catherine. The rest of the family valued her, too. When Bette died on December twenty-eighth, 1829, she was buried in the Sedgwick family plot. She is the only non-family member given that honor. The tombstone they erected said, Elizabeth Freeman, known by the name of Mum Bette, Died December twenty eighth, eighteen twenty nine. Her supposed age was eighty five years. She was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly thirty years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere she had no superior or equal. She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a trust nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper and the tenderest of friend. Good mother, farewell. Up until now in this series, we've had next to nothing from the women themselves about how they felt about their slavery. Elizabeth Freeman is the first where I can tell you in her own words how she felt. She said, Any time, any time while I was a slave, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me and I had been told I would die at the end of that one minute, I would have taken it just to stand one minute. I would have taken it to stand one minute on God's earth, a free woman. I would. My sources this week were a hodgepodge of different articles, which I have cited on the website, herhalfofhistory.com. The only readily available book about Elizabeth Freeman is a children's book that is technically nonfiction, though it's really dramatized. I've got links to that on the website as well. Just as a side note, I am aware that there was a little discrepancy in my accounting here about whether she was nearly 30 years old or nearly 40 years old when she got out of slavery. That discrepancy exists in the historical record. If you can find time to give me a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be fabulous. If you've already given me a review there, you are wonderful. If you don't listen to this show on Apple Podcasts, that actually doesn't mean that you can't leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter or Facebook. Next week, we will be moving south to Virginia, where I don't think a case like Elizabeth Freeman's would have gone so well. Fortunately, next week's heroin had some other advantages. I hope you listen in for it. Thanks.